0: Well, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the Bible no one told you about. We're going to dive into that in a minute, but I cannot miss the opportunity to reiterate we need Easter this year. For ages, Easter has meant fresh starts, new beginnings, the ability to move forward in a power greater than our own, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We are going to be lifting that up because, my goodness, if there was ever a year where we want to put the past behind us and open our eyes to fresh starts and new beginnings, it's this year. We're going to be in the park, Montevideo, April 4th, 10.30 a.m. So bring your blankets, bring your chairs, bring your Cadbury eggs, bring your peeps, peeps eat best if you leave them out the day before. I'm just telling you, come to Easter expectant. This is gonna be a great time. All are welcome. Cool stuff for your family, the whole family and kids. All that to be said, we're gonna keep rolling. Just to remind you though, I can't wait to be with you guys and lift up Jesus together in person on Easter. We will also have our regular Momentum Online services that weekend. The same message that we're gonna push out online will be in person at the park. So consider just two different options for the same Easter experience. Can't wait to see you either online or in the park on Easter Sunday. That being said, we gotta get back into the Bible no one told you about. Let me tell you why we're doing this and what's going on here. First of all, our goal this year is to relaunch momentum, not reopen momentum. Our goal is not to simply open our doors and hope people come back. We're gonna be intentional and strategic this year about reaching into our city and recasting a vision for what church was made to be. So we're gonna be diving into that. Now, we are gonna be pouring ourselves out for the sake of others and the life of our city. And the way I see it, if we're gonna be pouring ourselves out, we need deep wells to draw from. So the Bible no one told you about is a systematic look at Scripture, starting at the beginning, working all the way to through to the end. And we're not just sitting on the surface of what sits there in the pages of Scripture, but we're doing a deep dive. And so I'll just tell you uh, from the beginning, number one, um, if you've been curious about what's in the Bible and you've read it, maybe been confused from time to time, this is your opportunity to see what the Bible actually has to say. Shoot, if you're hungry spiritually, you've been craving God, but you're not craving, Crazy about religion. um, This is a great series because we're just getting let God's word speak to us with no middleman and and no add-ons, no tradition, just what is in this book and what does it mean for us. And finally, if you want a deep and raw look at scripture, what I'm saying is this ain't your grandma's Bible study. When all the parts and pieces of scripture, um, we're going to look through and look at what they mean for us, especially today, you guys, we're diving into the life of a man named Abraham, and we're going to be unpacking what happened 5,000 years ago with this man and his family and what it means for us today. Honestly, I just sit in full view today of how I need God to show up and to do something if anything's going to happen. So I'm going to stop and pray as we go, and then we're going to dive forward. Um, in, in our in our scripture. Let's go. Uh, God and Father, we just ask that it is you communicating with us. As we open your word, as we look at your heart, God, I pray that you would capture us anew with your glory, with your wonder, and your power. God, I, I don't want just my wisdom or some a simple sermon. I want us together to encounter you, and I know we need you if that's going to happen, be with us even right now, God, online, uh, no matter where people are watching from. In Jesus' name, amen. So... We've began at the very beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. He makes this garden for man and a woman to dwell in. Everything gets messed up because of the man and the woman's rebellion. Um, by the way, speaking of the Bible no one told you about, we actually know where this garden was. In Scripture, in Genesis 2, we, we get a hint, and it says, the, "...a river watering the garden flowed from Eden." From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first one was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havala, uh, where there is gold. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Now, You can pull up a map today and and take these hints to tell us that the Garden of Eden existed in what would now be Southern Iraq. Now, if you study humanities and world histories, this is clear as well. We know that this is the center of civilization. The earliest forms of humanity are found in this location. But I'm gonna take you through history to where we are in this story today. So from the Garden of Eden, mankind spreads out all over the map. And we know that there's four major civilizations that kind of came forward from the Garden of Eden, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and people who moved east into Asia or China, what is now modern-day China, of course. So years go by, and humanity continues to expand. But as humanity does, so does the brokenness that came out of the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled. And so what you have is years stacking up of, of distrust, disloyalty, insecurity, of wars, of people taking advantage of one another, of the, the strong leveraging their power over the weak in inappropriate ways. And humanity is struggling. This is exactly when God decides, decides to launch his great rescue plan. Here in Mesopotamia, about 5,000 years ago, there's an old man with a sore back, many years behind him, nearing the end of his life, with a wife and no children. And it's there that God steps into history of this man named Abram and reveals his great rescue plan. See, God wanted to take this man and turn him into a family. The family would become a nation. The nation would one day give birth to a Messiah, the Savior of the world. One who would come through this family to win humanity back to God once and for all. Um, Pastor Andy Stanley wrote an amazing book called The Grace of God. And he talks about just why God chose to rescue the world in this manner. He says this, he would settle this nation, that's Israel, at the crossroads of the ancient world so that merchants and armies of all nations would carry compelling tales of a remarkably advanced civilization and the invisible God that they serve. This nation would be the mouthpiece through which he would speak to the world, then offer salvation. Unfortunately, now we're going back into Abraham's day, All the existing nations and civilizations on the earth were taken. They already had laws and and superstitions that shaped their ideology. The existing people groups had carved their reputations in the minds of their neighbors through pagan ceremonies and cultic practices informed by values that were in direct opposition to what God intended for creation. So rather than reform an existing nation, the Lord God decided to start his own. He would create a new nation, an entirely new people group. And rather than beginning with a tribe or even a family, God decided to start with an individual. God steps into history. And as we'll see in just a moment, he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And covenant is what we're actually studying in Scripture. Yeah, we're going to learn about Abraham, but we're going to learn this idea of covenant because the idea of covenant is essential when it comes to understanding the great narrative, the great redemptive narrative that we see unfold all the way through Scripture. Now, covenant is just a relational agreement between two people. Guess what? If you are married, you are in a covenant relationship with another person. Now, in history, covenants were very common. They're not unique to Scripture. Uh, In a time marked by clans and tribes, tribalism, land, war, raids, and rape, covenants were common. If you had resources that I need, and I need protection that you can offer with your tribe, we might form a covenant together. And covenants were these massive ceremonies where my tribe and yours would come together, families would stop what they were doing, and everybody would come from the surrounding areas to witness these covenants. Covenants in Abraham's day were taken seriously. They often involved the sacrificing of some sort of animal to show the severity of the covenant. The blood spilled from the animal was a symbol that if I break this covenant or you break this covenant, it's your blood that's going to be spilled. As a matter of fact, in Abram's day, there was this common ceremony where to participate in a covenant, picture this big family gathering at night, fires lit, torches, people from all over, your clan, my clan, coming together. And then they would take several different animals, and I apologize if this is a little vulgar or grotesque for you, but they would cut the animals in half And lay half a a cow here, half a cow here, half a goat here, half a goat there. They would cut these animals in half, smallest to largest. And they would make this trench that you would walk through in the animal's blood. And to seal the covenant, I would walk through the middle of these animals. And then you would walk through the middle of these animals. And in front of everyone, we would be saying to one another, if I break this covenant, may what happens to these animals happen to me and my family. They took covenants very serious in this day. Now, hold on to that, because in just a minute, we're going to watch God show up and, and enter into a covenant relationship with Abram but let's do a little more work on covenants. I'm going to give you a background on covenant so you have this in your mind as you continue to study the Bible and learn God's big narrative. Now in scripture, there's lots of different covenants. Um, Noah, I, You see them, they, they change the name. It says the Noahic covenant. I'm just going to call that Noah's covenant. The the Abrahamic covenant, rather than changing it uh, into new language, I'm just going to say there's Abraham's covenant, there's Moses's covenant, a priestly covenant, David's covenant, and the new covenant through Christ. And When I say covenant, just think of agreement or arrangement between God and man in terms of relationship. So, for example, the Mosaic covenant or Moses's covenant is that God is going to give Israel the law, and if they follow the law or the way of living shown in the law, God will bless them. Now, there's all kinds of different covenants. The priestly covenant that says one day a priest from this certain tribe will sit on God's throne forever. I could go on. Okay, People have written volumes and volumes on covenant. I just want to tell you the most important thing to know about covenant when you hear covenant in the Bible. Number one, every covenant points to Jesus and every covenant was fulfilled by Jesus. One, every covenant was, points to Jesus. Two, every covenant was fulfilled by Jesus. Uh, I'll cut to a common one that maybe you heard as a child if you grew up around the faith. Um, in the story of Noah's Ark. God and Noah meet together at the end. Uh, If you don't know the story, there is a moment where a cataclysmic flood wipes out humanity uh, because of God's wrath and man's wickedness. And then there's a man named Noah. He's rescued on a boat with his family and animals. At the end of the flood, the water levels recede and God and Noah meet together. And God makes a covenant with Noah that he will never again take out his wrath on humanity. And there's this rainbow in the sky to symbolize the way that God has created peace between himself and mankind. Now, this points to Jesus. It points to a day when one day the wrath of God would not be poured out on humanity, but it would be dealt with through Christ on the cross. As a matter of fact, the original language in this moment in Scripture says that God hung his bow in the sky. The weapon of his wrath was hung in the sky, and the bow was not pointed down at humanity, but rather up at God himself to say, when God goes to war on on evil and sin, ultimately, it will be himself taking the punishment for man's Uh, for man's sin and and, and moral filth, okay? So it points to Jesus and ultimately was fulfilled when Jesus took care of the wrath of God on a cross once and for all. Okay, now you kind of got covenant. It's different ways that God establishes covenant with humanity. So God is beginning his redemptive story with this man who will become a family that will become a nation that, that will one day bring a savior into the world. And I'm gonna just take you into the story right now. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, Abram, you're going to hear his name, Abram and Abraham. So God shows up and speaks to this man. And he says, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all of the people of the earth will be blessed through you. God shows up and makes a covenant with Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to turn your family into a great nation, and the entire world will be blessed by you. Now, if you were to watch what happens, you see Abram respond with obedience, but it gets rocky quickly. It says in the scripture, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, that's his brother. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and his, his possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, where the, and they arrived there. So Abram takes God at his word, moves his family to this land that God's going to show him. Now, what happens next is hardly heroic in its nature. And get this, as we study the Old Testament scriptures, when you see people do bizarre things, nowhere in scripture does it say these people were acting right. They're not always examples to us. And Abraham isn't either. As a matter of fact, after these words, God makes him this promise. He shows up in this man's life and comes to him with this huge covenant of blessing. And Abram follows for a little bit, but his faith wanes quickly. I can relate to that. And he's like, how am I going to become a great nation? I'm old. My wife is old. He says her womb is dried up. We're as good as dead. He's 75. His wife is advanced in their years. My wife and I were laughing because she's a labor and delivery nurse. And they now call 35 years old a geriatric pregnancy. Figure that one out. There's Sarah in somewhere in her 70s. And God says, you guys are going to become a great nation. So you watch a couple more chapters go by. And Abram begins to doubt. He's on this journey with God, but there are way more questions than answers, and and you watch his faith wane in the process. But then God shows back up, and this is where something truly amazing happens. Chapter 15, God shows up, and he says, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. That was actually a common practice back then. Then the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he, that's God, took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then something amazing happens. God wants to meet with Abram in a manner that he can understand. So God arranges a ceremony that Abram would have been well familiar with To confirm the covenant. He tells Abram to grab a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon and to split them in half as was a common practice in his culture. And together they were going to confirm the covenant. But this is where, follow me you guys, follow me. This is where something truly amazing and unexpected happens. If you were to read the story, Abraham prepares to make the covenant. He splits the animals and does everything just as he'd probably seen his fathers do or maybe he had done at some other point in his life. And God puts Abram into a deep sleep and then the presence of God passes through the animals itself and then Abram wakes up from the sleep. But here is a remarkable thing. Abram never walks through the animals. God didn't allow him to do so. You could keep flipping through the pages and you'll see that Abram never walks through the animals to confirm the covenant because God was making a statement in this moment. If you were in the original audience and you saw a covenant like this being made and you saw one party pass through but the other never did, you would be turning pages going, huh, there must be something or this must happen later in the story. I wonder when he actually confirms covenant as well. But that's not what happens here. God makes a promise to Abram and then says, tell you what, I'm gonna be completely responsible for seeing this through. God makes a promise to Abram about a family, a blessing, and one day a savior who would transform the world forever. And God himself says, it's on me. And should you fail, or Abram, should you falter, it doesn't matter, I will pay the cost myself. What kind of God does that? What kind of God says, if you fail, my love will prevail? What kind of God says, hey, I want to make a deal with you. I want a covenant with you. I want a relationship with you. And I don't even want you to pass through the animals. I don't want you to feel like our relationship is conditional upon your behavior. See, I believe you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of deals they make. My friends in business and real estate and investors would tell you pretty quickly you could tell a lot about a person by the kind of deals they make you could tell a lot about a realtor by the kind of deals they make you could tell a lot about an investor by the kind of deals she makes and you can tell a lot about a god by the kind of covenant he makes what kind of god says you know what i want relationship with you i want to win humanity back to myself And even if you fail, I will pay the cost myself. Do you remember? Passing through those animals meant if I don't uphold this covenant, may what happened to them happen to me. What kind of God says if you fail or you break the conditions of this covenant, I'll be the one slaughtered for it? You know what kind of God I see in that? I see a loving father. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but a deal like that is unheard of. Those of you who have bought houses or, or buying houses, you get this, right? Because you remember, you found the house, you wanted the house, and then you started working with your lender and gathering all those papers together and W-2s and pay stubs and all the stuff, and then it finally came time to sign for the house, and they send that... Um, notary over to your house, and they take a thumbprint, and then you start signing and dating papers, and it says, hey, for real, you're going to owe us a lot of money, and then you sign, they flip it over, and the next one's like, no, seriously, you owe us tons of money, and then you flip it, and then the next one's like, no, really, we will take your children, should you not pay, and you know what I've done, I've, I've filled out a couple of those this so far, and, and I've noticed there's no piece of paper at the end of the agreement that says, oh, you know what, by the way, if you're not able to pay, don't worry, Uncle Wells Fargo will cover it for you. Oh, that doesn't happen. But in God's economy, it does. Who would do that? I'd say a loving father. Um, I'm an 80s baby, and I turned 16, I think, in the year 2000, if my math is correct. And so I didn't do the thing where these kids today are like, well, I got Lyft, I got Uber, I don't need a driver's license. No, coming in my generation, you got that car ready before you could drive. At 15 years old, I had purchased with the help of my family this beautiful Ford Tempo. It's not this Ford Tempo. Mine was way better. And I was so pumped to drive. I'd been thinking about that day since I was a child. And I get the Ford Tempo. And and man, you better believe I switched these out for some Walmart rims. And you better believe there were two 12-inch Rockford Fosgate subwoofers in the trunk. You better believe that thing rattled. You better believe my friends and I just sat in the car when we were 15, just waiting for the day I'd turn 16 and we'd be rolling in this thing. Now, here's a cool thing. Um, I remember you know, working odd jobs and doing what I did growing up, making enough money, saving for the car. And my dad and I, we split it. You know, my parents fronted some money. I fronted some money. And I I believe there was a gap there because my my dad said, tell you what, we'll get the car. Um, We'll pay this part. You pay that part. But you still also have to pay us a little more. And so we did it. And we set up a payment plan. And I remember taping a piece of paper to my wall and each month I would make my car payment for about 150 bucks and I would cross off the little, the little ledger that I had created for myself and so I knew how much debt I had left. And I'll never forget something. I probably wasn't even half the way there of paying off my debt. And I brought my dad my payment like I always do. And I handed it to him and he goes, you know what, Matt? It's good. I'm like, what? I mean, I still owed a thousand and some odd dollars, and he wasn't taking this payment. And he's like, tell you what, man, it's good. And I was shocked, because I hadn't paid all the way. But he absorbed the debt himself and erased it. And that moved me. And you guys, I see our God in that. See, he didn't just say, you know what, I'm going to let you guys fool me, or I'm going to overlook your sin. No, 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 no. He's a loving father who says, even if you fail, my love will prevail. In the event of your failure, I will take the wrath and the punishment on myself, which is what he would later do. What else do we see in the character of a God who makes a covenant like this? Well, two, we see a God who's radically committed to seeing through his purposes. We see a God who's playing football like a Herschel Walker or a Walter Payton or an Emmett Smith. He's he's saying, you know what? I'm taking this ball to that end zone no matter what it costs me. If I got to put my shoulder down, if I got to stay in bounds, if I got to go right up the center and carry this play through and I get blasted for it, I'm going to get us there. I see that in God. He doesn't say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make a deal with you, but if you screw it up, then this whole thing is over and I'm picking someone else. He doesn't say, I want a relationship with you, but only when you do a good job and it's convenient for me. In these words, you see a God who's radically committed to pursuing his people in love. Bible study for you, it is called chesed. You can spit when you say it. C-H-E-S-E-D. It's this word in scripture that shares God's character of unfailing kindness. If you're slow like me and you want it simple, the Jesus Storybook Bible that we absolutely love calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's his nature. And from this moment forward through history, You see God pursuing humanity with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. He pursues humanity. Abraham's son Isaac. He pursues Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob lies to his father and his brother to inherit a birthright that's not his own. It doesn't disqualify Jacob. God keeps pursuing him with his love. We could go to Moses who runs from his family, his identity, and his culture, and God pursues him with his love. Moses then goes on to be one of the worst leaders in scripture's history, but God never gives up on Moses. He pursues him with his love. We could talk about Rahab, the spy And God pursues this lady with her love, not because of her behavior, but because of God's power. You could talk about King David who was supposed to rule with justice and uses his throne to commit adultery. And if you watch, he breaks every single one of the Ten Commandments after that moment. But God doesn't give up. He just keeps pursuing in love. You watch the story of Israel through the time of the prophets and they would turn to God when things got rough and run from God when their blessings were abundant. But God keeps pursuing them in his love. God shows up. He moves into the neighborhood in Jesus. Why? Because he's a God who pursues and love. On the back end of Jesus, there was a man named Saul. He was a murderer. He was a threat. He was a persecutor. But God pursues him with his love. And at the end of his life, from a prison cell, Saul, who became Paul, wrote these words. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, time. Let's take a little break for application. See, we get grace on the front end of our faith. That moment when you got saved, you were baptized, you realized you couldn't do it on your own, you needed Jesus, you ran from your old life, you embraced God in a new life, and and you got his grace. You got it wasn't about your performance in that moment. You got that you needed Jesus to make it in your faith. But then something happens to us as we walk with God for a little while. We forget the grace that first got us in. Because after you've screwed up, maybe your 10th time, your 12th time, your 16th time, you start to think that maybe, just maybe, I've run out of chances. Maybe, just maybe, God's done with me. Maybe I'm just done with myself. But these words stand out and they point back to the God of covenant who says, I'm going to pursue you until my purposes are complete in you. And I just want to pause. Let me just stop. Let me get through this camera. Let me get through your screen and just tell you. He's not done with you yet. God has a vision for the kind of woman you're going to become, for the kind of man he wants you to be, for the things that you're going to go and do with your life. And he is radically committed to seeing those purposes through. God has a vision for you, a love for you, a passion for you. And you cannot outsin it. He's committed to you in love. The same grace that got you into the faith is available to you today in Jesus when you turn to Him. Keep walking. If you feel like you're crawling, keep crawling because He still believes in you. Now, what else do we see in this covenant? As we wrap, I'll tell you what I see. I see Jesus. Remember when we said every single covenant points to Jesus and would one day be fulfilled by Jesus? That's exactly what we see here. God enters into relationship with humanity. And he says, I'll tell you what, even if you fail, my love will prevail. And should you fail, should you falter, I'm not going to pour out my wrath on you. I'll pour out, I'll take the wrath myself. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. John 3:16, "For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life." I' going to tell you something. What God promised thousands and thousands of years ago, He made good on on the cross. Shoot, if you're a regular weekend watcher and it's Sunday for you, this is Palm Sunday. This represents the time that Jesus stood above Jerusalem, looked down on it, knowing he was going there to die with you in mind and with me in mind. And he made that ride into town where he was killed and absorbed the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. Oh, God knew on that day with Abraham that we don't have what it takes. God knew that we would fail, that we would rebel. But what God did with Abraham's rebellion, David's rebellion, my rebellion, and your rebellion, is he poured his wrath out on his son rather than us. What do you do with that? Well, there's a hint in Scripture. You believe. There's these words in Genesis five fifteen six, and it says Abram believed the Lord, and he was credit and it he credited it to him as righteousness, meaning when Abraham decided to believe in the love, the power, and the purposes of God, he was marked as innocent, as and in, as a sinless man. He believed. Tim Keller writes about it. And he says, Abraham wasn't saved by believing in God. Verse three reminds us, Abraham believed God. He is the man who trusts God, who justifies the wicked. Saving faith is not believing that God is there. Further, it's not believing in a God who saves. It's believing God when he promises the way of salvation by grace. And my friends, that way of salvation is available to you today. Simple words. Jesus, I believe you. Jesus, I believe you. And so, man, if you feel like you've been up to your ears and your shortcomings and failures, and you want to see those erased by God through what Jesus has already done for you, it is as simple as this. Jesus, I believe you. I mean, you could say it right now where you are. Jesus, I believe you. Now, If you're like me and you've journeyed with God for a while and you've had that moment, you've trusted grace, what do you do with these words? Man, I'll tell you what you do. You savor your Savior. You savor the fact that God has not held you accountable. You savor the fact that he sent a substitution in for you to take the punishment you deserve. You rebuild your life on that every day. You celebrate it. You look forward to Easter. You party at Easter. You don't mourn. You celebrate the fact that God knew you. He knew your shortcomings, your failures. And instead of holding you accountable, He offered His Son. That's a God worth treasuring. That's a God who deserves your life. That's a God that you don't just wink at on Sundays. It's a God who wants to know you walk with you, and be with you even today. I love you guys. See you at Easter. Peace.